Welcome to episode two of Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people about their favorite manuscripts and why they love them. Today, we're very excited to talk to Lisa Fagan Davis about her three favorite manuscripts from the Beinecke Library at Yale University, which she describes as a fragment, a forgery, and a fiend. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we start, I want to define a few terms that will come up in this episode for those of you who aren't familiar with manuscript studies. Paleography is the study of ancient scripts and handwriting. Neumes are early musical notation and may be written with or without a musical staff. An offset happens when a manuscript leaf is pressed up against another leaf or the binding and ink transfers from the leaf onto whatever it is pressed against, leaving a mirror image. Welcome. We are here with Lisa Fagan Davis, and she is about as famous as a manuscript scholar can be. So she probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Lisa is currently the executive director of the Medieval Academy of America. She also teaches manuscript studies at the Simmons College Graduate School of Library and Information Science. Uh, Lisa has had a long career as a manuscript cataloger, so she has seen a lot of manuscripts in her life. She has cataloged collections for such esteemed institutions as the University of Pennsylvania, the Walters Art Museum, Wellesley College, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Boston Public Library, and of course, Yale University, where she earned her PhD. So saying that somebody has a PhD from Yale is normally a thing that you say to impress people, but in this case, it's actually relevant to our conversation. And so I'm going to turn it over to Lisa, and she's going to tell us about some amazing manuscripts. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hi, Dot. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you all so much for inviting me. And thank you for that very kind introduction, Dot. That was Aww. that was lovely. And we have a, a mutual admiration society because your your work has been uh, really instrumental in, in a lot of my work in, oh, in recent years, as you know. Thank you. I'm very, very grateful to you for your for your uh, impact in this field as well. Thanks a lot. So I know the, the theme was supposed to be three things, one manuscript, but I'm sort of flipping it around and I'm going to talk about three manuscripts in one place. And that is uh, a library that's very special to me, the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, which, as Dot said, was where I did my doctoral work a very long, a very long time ago. So I'm going to introduce you to three of my favorite manuscripts all of which happen to be at the Beinecke. So they're not just my three favorite Beinecke manuscripts. They are, in fact, three of my favorite manuscripts, and they all happen oh, wow. to be in one place. There are lots of other things at the Beinecke that I could talk about, but I've selected three, a fragment, a forgery, and a fiend. And so we will go in. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we will go in the order in which I came to know them, came to know these manuscripts, all three of which have had impacts on my scholarship and my career as a medievalist. So I'm going to start with Beinecke Manuscript 481.51, and um, I will show it to you. Yeah, so she's going to show them to us, and I will have links to these in the show notes. So you at home will be able to see this too. So this lovely creature is known as Beinecke Manuscript 481.51, also known as the Gottschalk Antiphonary, or Antiphonal. The two words are sort of uh, interchangeable. I 
encountered this object, this collection of fragments, when I was a graduate student 30 years ago at Yale, and I had a job as the assistant to the curator of pre-1600 manuscripts at the Beinecke, who at the time was Robert Babcock. And he put me to work one day on these giant boxes of uncatalogued fragments. And he said to me, here's your assignment for the next few years. You're going to catalog these. You're going to identify the texts. You're going to do some conservation work. So I worked in the conservation lab and did repairs on some of the fragments. It was hundreds and hundreds of them. And that became, uh, that became this book right here, volume four of the Beinecke, uh, Beinecke catalog. Oh, wow. And that was co-authored by Robert Babcock, myself, and uh, Philip Ruschi, who is now currently a professor, uh, an English professor at University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And so uh, Phil and I and another grad student, uh, Nancy Siebold, spent several years going through and cataloging all of this material. And over the course of that project, I encountered these leaves, 17 leaves, all of which are from the same manuscript, just a beautiful 12th century script, unheightened nooms, that is, without a staff, and these lovely initials, historiated initials, here's the prophet uh, Jeremiah holding a scroll with his own words on it. Do you mind if we pause for a second? I'll sort of yep. describe how what I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, so it's, they're, they are big, like they look very large. There's lots and lots of, how many lines are on each of these? Like 28. How many? 28. 28. I was almost right. I yep. guess 30. Good guess. Yeah. Um, They're about eight by 10, I would say. That's sort of the size of like an eight by 10. Oh, sheet. wow. Okay. Because they look yeah. like they would be bigger than that. But I guess the writing is is then smaller than I'm yes. thinking it is. Yeah. It's just um, Yeah. And it is. It's very sort of very clearly written. Sort of the, the margins aren't very large. There's a little bit of a margin around, but they're not, they're not very large. And there are nooms so like little marks over each line so like between the lines each line of text where it looks like there's phrases and so where there a phrase starts you have these little slightly larger initials at the start of the line that are sort of on the outside of the line so almost in the margin and then there are these occasional much larger it looks like they're about four lines or five lines tall that have decorations and there's red. So most of the text is black. The smaller initials have little red, it looks like red dots in them and around them. And then these sort of more decorative initials that are really, that are really beautiful. And it's like, it's the one I'm looking at now. It looks like that's a Q. Mm -hmm. And the descender of the Q is sort of going into the line below it and sort of interacting with the text a little bit, which is really interesting. They look like the living, breathing plants, right? They're, you know, they're really mm -hmm. organic. So uh, these initials, on the one hand, you have the, the sort of body of the initial, which almost looks like it's a piece of metal. And then growing around and within it are these white vines uh, mm -hmm. outlined in red and with little purple uh, elaborations throughout them as very uh, typical style for the late 12th century uh, in this region, the manuscript 
I and my colleagues, we were able to determine that the manuscript was written in the 12th century abbey at Lombach in uh, northern Austria, basically about Mm. halfway between Salzburg and Vienna. And over the course of the, the whole project, what we discovered was that this whole collection of hundreds and hundreds of fragments, most of them could actually be traced back to Lombok. They'd all come from the same source. And that is a, a story that has been written about in a book. <laughs> it's called Reconstructing a Medieval Library. And what we discovered was that back in the in the 1940s during World War II, the Abbey needed a, a wood lathe <laughs> for their woodworking shop. And they had all of these fragments that had been used in their late medieval bindings. And it was very, very common in the, the late Middle Ages, the early modern period, for manuscripts that had become uh, out of, that were out of use, that were outdated, or that were damaged, to be broken up and used as binding material uh, in a bindery. And that's what happened to this manuscript. By the time we get to the 15th century, nobody could read it anymore. No one could read the news. No one could, you know, the script was out of fashion. Music notation had developed into a four or five line staff. And so the manuscript was taken apart and and used as uh structural pieces of early modern and late medieval bindings. And that's why they're all cut up into such funny little scraps like this one. So this one is missing the top, several lines at the top and about half of its width. So it's been down to a really specific Mm -hmm. size so that it could fit into the binding in which it was, in which it was used. I'll also point out that um, that's Bob Babcock's handwriting. (laughs) <laughs> right there. Some of them have some of them have my handwriting on them, which is always a little weird to encounter. So she zoomed into the bottom corner where where a, a, a cataloger has written in pencil the manuscript number and the folio number. Right, and that's that's the curator Bob Babcock. That's his. I recognize his handwriting. At any rate, so what we discovered was that before World War II, a scholar named Kurt Holter had come to Lombok. And he had taken very detailed notes about early binding fragments that he found in the library, and he published them. During the war, when the Abbey needed money during the Anschluss, they pulled out all these fragments out of the bindings and they sold them to raise money. That was actually my question. So these were actually in books. Yes. And they took them out of books. They took them out and sold them. They kept the books, Mm -hmm. but they removed the binding fragments and sold them. And so then the fragments were all sold. They ended up with a Swiss book dealer who sold them on to Hans Krauss, New York City book dealer in the 1960s. But by the time the fragments got to Krauss, the Lombach story behind them had been lost. Mm -hmm. And Krauss didn't know where they had originally come from. And then he he gave, he sold half the collection to Yale and then gave them the other half. So there are these two huge fragment collections, but now they're sitting at Yale in the late 1960s and their origin story has been lost. And so we were able to backtrack it. And the, the really cool, exciting part was that we found this article that Kurt Holter had written in the 1930s, where he goes through and describes in great detail 
the fragments he found in Lombach, and we were literally able to match them up. Wow. The description in the article with the fragment in front of me, I will never forget it. I was sitting in Bob's office and I had the article, he had the article, I had the fragments and he would say, okay, so this describes a gradual that's this many millimeters high and this many millimeters across. And it starts with this word. And I would be like, oh, oh, that's it. It's this one right here that I'm holding in my hand. It was amazing. That's such a great story. Thrilling. It was so thrilling. And then when I was doing, I, I ended up writing my dissertation about this particular collection, this, these um, antipodal fragments. And that then, that then became my first book. Yay. And so while I was doing that research, I went to Austria to go to Lombach. I actually went to the Abbey and stayed there for a few weeks looking at um, the NC2 manuscripts. But I also went to the National Library in Vienna and several other libraries where there were Lombach manuscripts to look at them. And when I was in Vienna, I actually found several books that still had inverted offsets of the fragments that were at Yale. So then you could match up. Not only could we say this fragment is the one that Kurt Holter describes, but here is the offset from where it was formally pasted inside this Binding, right. And you can literally see it as a mirror image. It was just an incredibly thrilling way to kind of launch me into manuscripts, the manuscript world and, and fragments and fragmentology. You know, I didn't, I, you know, for my, for my dissertation, here's, here's my fragmentological reconstruction. I mean, it is literally black and white photographs. Can you see that? I can see that. Yeah. So it's two, it's black and white photographs that you've just sort of, they, that in the book are sort of set as facing page in the book. As a facsimile, right? <laughs> yeah. But the way that I did this work, I'm literally sitting on the floor of my living room with scissors and paste and black and white photocopies trying to put this manuscript back together because there are also other pages that are known. There are two pages at Harvard. There are several pages still in Austria. And then there, there's a page hanging on the wall of a resort in the Alps. Oh. I got to go there and like wandered around this hotel trying to find this page that I was told in a footnote was hanging on a wall somewhere. And I managed, I finally found it. It was really, that was really fun. Like a scavenger hunt through this huge hotel in the Alps. And like in, I felt like I was in the shining or something wandering around the, these empty hallways. And then the best story is that in the 19, I guess it was the fifties, a collector decided that he wanted to take his collection of manuscripts and manuscript fragments on and do a road show. So he packed them all, put up a little exhibit inside an aluminum trailer and drove it around the Midwestern United States oh, wow. for 10 years, doing ha having tours from elementary schools, <laughs> high schools, church groups, you know, he would just like roll into town. It was called the magic carpet on wheels. I love and it. <laughs> he would just roll into town and arrange these tour groups to come and go through. And he had a page of the Gottschalk and Tishman oh, wow. on this road show. So one of these pages, I, I mean, I, the whole idea that like my parents growing up in Oklahoma might have seen this when it rolled through Oklahoma City, you know, I, it just blows my mind. And in the end, the whole collection was purchased by the St. Louis Public Library. And so they have a page of the Gottschalk so and Tiffinal. Cool. And, and that, that, is, that is the 
the thing about medieval manuscripts, one of the things that just really floats my boat is that the stories of how they got from then and there to here and now, especially when the here and now is 21st century North America. Right. Uh, you know, what? How? what is this thing even doing in New Haven, Connecticut? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's half of the half of the the interest and, and half of the joy is that these manuscripts, if you're a medievalist in North America and you're studying the European Middle Ages, the objects that you study in North America are all immigrants. They all have immigration stories about how they how they got here, the way that I might talk about my, you know, my great grandparents getting off the boat in Galveston. Mm-hmm. Well, how did this how did this thing even get here? And um, this this object, the Gottschalk Antiphonary, just has a really splendid story that I um, that that really launched my my interest in both uh, in everything medieval manuscripts, fragmentology, and uh, manuscript provenance. Yeah. Yeah, the provenance is such an important part of that. It, it is sort of amazing to me that it didn't take long for the provenance to get lost. From like right. you know, the thirties to yep. the to the sixties. To the sixties. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It just went through a few hands. All it takes is one person um to lose track mm-hmm. or intentionally not pay attention. You know, I mean, we know that these were not war booty. They did not leave they left Lombach under appropriate circumstances. Mm-hmm. They were sold by the Abbey. There's no question of the line of ownership. You know, often yeah. there's a there there could be a big hole in the provenance in the 1940s, and that's always a uh, an alarm bell, yeah. right? Yeah. If you if you can't tell me how that manuscript left 1940s Austria, I need to know how that happened, mm-hmm. right? Because there are laws governing such things, and if there's a question, then you have to investigate, and you may have to you may be obliged, or you may wish to uh, repatriate that. Mm-hmm. You know that happens a lot, and and in fact, I've done several repatriation investigations about medieval manuscripts uh, in Boston for the United States government. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I am a, I am uh, an agent of the Department of Homeland Security. That is, that's actually really cool. <laughs> consultant, not an agent, a consultant. <laughs> I've, done, I've done several investigations that, that resulted in repatriations, all of which were voluntary. Mm-hmm. But you can't just send something back. You have to go through the lawyers and, and the investigation. And anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track. But my point being that provenance is, is extremely important mm-hmm. um, when you're talking about something that started on the other side of the ocean and is here today. Yeah. Um, that uh, sorting out the, the exact chain of ownership is, uh, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And in the case of this manuscript, everything is, everything is tidy. Tidy. And it's a great story too. It's just a great. Um, it's a great story, and and it really is. It's just a. It's just such a beautiful manuscript, and and I I am so familiar now with this script. This is um, the the reason it's called the Gottschalk Antiphonal is because for other reasons for uh, his name is on another manuscript that's in now in in Berlin, but that's the same script, the same style of initials, and it says this book was made by Gottschalk of Lombach. So that's why, uh, that's how we we have named him and named the manuscript, the Gottschalk Antiphonal. And he uh, was responsible for just dozens of manuscripts. He was incredibly prolific. 
both as a scribe and as a and as an artist. This is you know a, a lovely manuscript, but some of his work is just dazzling. Mm -hmm. He was very very skilled, both as an artist and as a scribe. And um, a few years back, Elizabeth Hebbard, who is uh, was a Yale PhD at the time and is now uh, on the faculty at um, in at Indiana. She did a, a binding survey at the binding key. And this is something that every library should do at some point. Just go through all of your incunable bindings, all of your early modern bindings, because you're going to find stuff like this just hiding and really early things like pre-Caroline and Caroline manuscripts. And so she did a whole survey. And one of the things she found was she photographed a lot of offsets where there had been fragments and the fragments had been removed, leaving behind a mirror image of the, the text. And she was going through her pictures, showing me things. And I saw one that was actually, a, it was an offset, but it was upside down because that's how it had been in the book. And I said, wait, stop, download that, reverse it, rotate it. Gotcha. That's a page of Gottschalk. Not just Gottschalk, the Gottschalk into That's right, amazing. That had gone missing. And the page has not, has never been found. Right. But it was at the Beinecke the whole time I was doing this work, that incunable. Wow. But because no one had ever done a survey, mm -hmm. we didn't know about it until just a few years ago. And I've now done a, a, an online reconstruction of this manuscript using Fragmentarium. And I've added that offset to the reconstruction because I can because I know where it so I know where it fits. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, one of the great advantages of digital fragmentology as compared to the, the printed kind. Right. Uh, in that yeah. I can't I can't update this. Right. This is done. Right? This is this is a, a, a snapshot of this work at this moment in time, whereas on a digital resource like Fragmentarium, which is fragmentarium.ms, I can update it whenever, you know, whenever when find a new piece, whenever new things come yeah. or the fragments that were, um, there were some fragments that were still in Lombok that were actually still bound into incunables. And those have since been, they've disappeared. And, like the, like the, uh, they've been taken out of the books or? Yep. Oh. Books are still there. The leaves are gone. And the abbot and the librarian currently, they have no idea when it happened or how. Oh my God. And so the only record of those fragments are my black and white photographs from 30 years ago. So that's, uh, so I've, I've included them in my reconstruction, but in my digital reconstruction, but with the note that they're that they're missing. Interesting. So okay. keep an eye out. They may if they come on the market, then um, you know who to call. Yeah. Well, the antiphonal. <laughs> I mean, it is really it is, and and you people listening at home, you'll see it is like I can understand why mm -hmm. you would like immediately recognize it because it is a very striking. Yeah. Uh, it's very distinctive. Yeah, it's very distinctive. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you very quickly before we move on about this feature, what I'm looking at here uh, on the outer margins of every page oh, yeah. is a series of letters that, and sometimes two letters, uh, vowels uh, and consonants. And those actually are a very special system used in this region of uh, sort of Germany, Switzerland, Austria to indicate what's called the tone and the final of particular pieces, it's it's sort of like the key, so it it's sort of uh, not exactly the same as the key, but but 
that's the easiest way to explain what it is. So it tells you for this antiphon, si veritatem dico quare, it tells you the tone, which is the uh, A-E-I, the third tone, and then the final, which is the K. And that tells you where, basically how you start and how you finish. Oh, interesting. Because the nooms, they're, they're just give you relative pitch. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you specifically, you know, si veritatem. That, that's not what, it doesn't tell you literally how to sing it, but it's more of a mnemonic. Mm-hmm. Because as a, as a young novice at the monastery, you would have been learning these by heart since the time you were eight years old. And so the nooms basically are sort of tell you relative pitch, go up and down or just go up or go up and wibble around for a while and then come <laughs> down. That's a technical musical logical term. Uh, and so the, the tone and the final in the margin are a system that, that gives you some guidance about the actual performance of the, of the piece. So there's a lot of components to this, right? It's designed for a chorus to be sung aloud Mm -hmm. uh, during the monastic offices because it's an antiphonal, it's an office book as opposed to a gradual, which would be a a book for mass. I numbered these, I made up numbers for them. This is folio 13. So this this particular leaf actually has lots of evidence about the forward history of the leaf Mm -hmm. because it has a shelf mark, that 98. Oh. That's the shelf mark of the, the volume in which this was used at Lombach as, as a, a flyleaf. It has later annotations mm-hmm. from when it was used in the other in the book. And then it has here uh, on, the, on the left of the recto, what would be the, the gutter edge. You can see not only the original sewing holes, the little tiny ones right along the edges, are where it was originally stitched in mm-hmm. and uh, when it was connected to its conjoint bifolium. But then you also have this tab with these big tears that show how it was sewn into the incunable. Mm-hmm. There was a, it was folded along the edge and sewn into the front of the volume. And then it was torn out mm-hmm. when it was removed to be sold. So you have both the original sewing then you have this tab for the reuse, and then these tears from when it was pulled away. And then finally, you also have the modern shelf mark. Oh. So we have all of these signs of use and reuse in this one, uh, in this one place. So there's all of this uh, material evidence that you want to call upon when you're trying to understand the history of a fragment. Mm-hmm. You have to look at the text, you have to look at the annotations, you have to look at later annotations, later tears and folds and rips and all of these things, all of which come together to tell the story of this uh, of this object. Yeah, those sorts of folds around the edges is a really great way to identify any fragment that's been used in a binding because inevitably there's going to be usually folds, but also sometimes glue, like it'll be darker because of the glue that they used. So that's a great example. Yeah, exactly. And you can see that here, that there's some real damage um, here that has, uh, that has had, that has, you know, you can actually see the remnants of the glue right here, the paste that was used to to, uh, attach the spine, you know. Okay. So let's move along. All right. So the next thing I want to look at is this, epistolary for Cistercian use. This is manuscript 283 
Beinecke Manuscript 283. It is an epistolary, which means it's a, a collection of readings. It's actually, actually, I think it's a lectionary, not an epistolary. It's a, it's a collection of readings, not just from the epistles, but from other things as well, from other biblical texts. And it looks very fancy. It looks very nice. It's thought to be Spanish from the probably the early 16th century. Uh, but there's something weird about it going on. First of all, looking at the decoration on this page, you might look at it and think, well, that's fancy. Isn't that nice? But the sort of the more you look at it, the more you think, well, that looks, that looks weird. It just doesn't look, it doesn't look quite doesn't look quite right somehow. It's very pretty. Uh, and <laughs> it's very pretty. This first letter is supposed to be an F for fratres, but is that really that an F? That doesn't look like an F to me. That does not look like an F. All right. So let's keep all that in the back of our heads as we as we move forward. Let's let's look at the next one. So I wanted to actually look at folio 28, because that's a good example of what I'm my point. All right, so. Here we are on folio 28 recto, and at the very bottom of the page, it says... And this is all just text on the page. Right. This is all just text. It's written in a very yep. big, broad, Gothic rotunda, so a rounded Gothic script from the, you know, that you would you would look at this and go, oh yeah, that's a late medieval wow. Italian or Spanish manuscript. Uh, and the G's actually, the shape of the G's would puts it in Spain for me, but... Anyway, the point being, at the very bottom, we have a rubric that says Lectio Libri Regum 319. So we're looking, so the next thing that happens should be a reading from the third book of Kings. So we turn the page to 28 verso. We don't have a reading from the book of Kings. We have a whole full page miniature of what? I'm not entirely sure. So let's break this down. First of all, it looks like we've got, I guess that's God that up in like heaven God. there, up in the sky. Then we've got an angel. And then we've got a dude lying on the ground Sleeping. with his hat next to him with a jug of wine and a loaf of bread. And thou. And <laughs> not quite sure who this is supposed to be. Maybe King David? Hard to say. But if we if we look a little bit closer, you can see that the the gold is really cracked. Mm -hmm. It um, it isn't applied expertly. It's kind of sloppy. It in fact it the the way that gold leaf works is you're supposed to apply the gold first and then the color. But this actually looks like it happened the other way around because you can see that the gold doesn't really come right up to the edge of the of the um this castle here that it's it's just not expertly done and it looks like it's done maybe just wrong there's just something it's very sloppy it is sloppy work it's sloppy and then when we look at the facing page at 28 recto we find suddenly we have a, a whole new text it says here this is a reading from the book of ezekiel mm. well what happened to our to the kings. What happened to our book from the third book of Kings, our reading? It, it, it got skipped. What happened to it? Well, I'll tell you what happened to it. It's written right here underneath this full page miniature. Wow. 
underneath this full page miniature on folio 28v is the reading that we were looking for. Oh, yeah. And I can actually see because the there's the miniature and then there's this sort of decoration in the margin. And I can see yeah. that the miniature is exactly the same size as that as the text, as the text would be. Yeah. 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 What a coincidence. Amazing. So let's let's look at one other example and then I will break it all down for you. All right. So here is folio 37 verso, which is a reading from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 37. And at the very end of the page, it says, et odii fomitem minister, and the word is supposed to be ministravit. And that's not really an abbreviation for ministravit. Mm -hmm. There should be, there should be more on the next on the next leaf, right. the, the word has been cut off and the sentence has been cut off. It's not the end of the phrase. And yet, 38R, another full page miniature. And this and text it's beginning the new text. <gasps> wow. Yeah. <laughs> this manuscript was entirely illuminated by an artist known as the Spanish Forger. I love that. And <laughs> What he generally did, this was like his big, one of his biggest, boldest strokes of, uh, of fraud. Working in the late 19th century, he would take pieces, he had a, a giant, he bought a choir book at one point and took it apart and he would take the sheets of parchment, cut them up into squares and on one side, he would do a painting. And on the back, it might be a, a you know, a historiated initial, and then on the other side, you would see the original music from the choir book. And so he sold these off or his partners. We don't actually know who he was or who he was working with or how it all worked. But all of a sudden in the late 19th century, we have this flood of these square miniatures that make their way into the book, uh, into the book trade. And he uh, got away with this fraud for decades Nobody, nobody ever looked. If you looked at the back, it would be so obvious mm -hmm. that these couldn't possibly be authentic because the topics of the miniatures had nothing to do with what was on the other side. They, you know, they, 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 it was all just completely incongruous, but nobody ever looked at the other side, just mm -hmm. like with this manuscript where he went through and erased, scraped away giant pieces of text and replaced them with miniatures Nobody noticed because nobody was reading the thing right. in the 19th century. They were just looking at nobody, the pretty pictures. <laughs> they, just wanted the, they just wanted the pretty pictures. And the person who first identified his work as forged was Belle de Costa Green. Really? Yep. So she was on the visiting committee for the uh, Met, and they asked her to give them an opinion about this giant panel painting they had been offered if, if she thought they should buy it. And she took a look at it and she said, you know, it just, I don't think it's authentic. I think it's a forgery. I think it's modern. Her vision of this had to do with the colors. So this green that we see here as I'm zooming in to, to this guy hunting a, a stag in the background on folio 38, mm -hmm. this green in the trees was what looked suspicious to her. Mm -hmm. She thought it just didn't look right. And she advised the Met against purchasing this panel. And, and so they didn't. Right. And later on, scientific material testing, XRF 
uh, x-ray fluorescence testing, actually, which, which allows you to break down the mineral components in a pigment, uh, actually demonstrated that this green has a very high signal for arsenic, which proved that it was not a natural mineral pigment from the Middle Ages, but an artificial paint created in a chemist's lab in the 19th century. Wow. And it's called Paris Green. And that was how it was finally proven that this work is in fact uh, forged. And here he, it, and the Beinecke bought this knowing that it was a forgery. They, they were not fooled by it. They knew exactly what it was and that's why they bought it. Uh, I actually own a Spanish forger piece uh, as part of my own collection. I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, and I love the fact that it was Belle de Costa Green who was the one who, uh, <laughs> who sort of discovered that the work was um, was forged. Right. And Bella DaCosta Green, she was uh, the Morgan librarian, right? Right. She was J.P. Morgan's private librarian. Uh, in fact, there's a book out about her right now called The Private Librarian. That's pretty good. And I um, I first encountered the Spanish forger in this in this manuscript, and I've been a fan ever since. Uh, the thing, one of the things to know about Belle de Costa Green was not only was she, a, you know, just an extraordinary art historian, amazing connoisseur, very savvy businesswoman. She was, a, you know, this very glamorous socialite. All she was all over the social pages uh, in New York City in the nineteen, you know, nineteen teens and twenties and thirties. Uh, but she was also black, and she changed her name when she was a girl from greener to green, G-R-E-E-N-E, Belle da Costa Green, and added this middle name da Costa that would allow her to pass in New York society and in the, the sort of rarefied world of rare books and manuscripts in the early 20th century. Uh, and she, she passed herself off as Portuguese for her, uh, for her entire life. And, and we don't actually know who knew about her real background and who didn't. And, and you know, there was no way J.P. Morgan would have hired her if it had been publicly known that, that she was a Black woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she lived this whole life with uh, an, in uh, kind of a, a putting on this identity. Uh, she was a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America. She was the, the second woman to be elected a fellow and the first person of color, but of uh, you know, nobody, nobody knew that when she was elected. Right. So her association with the Spanish forger is another one of the reasons that I'm, um, that I'm a fan of, of his, of his work. Of his work. That's great. And we still don't know who he was. Mm -hmm. We don't know, you know, we know that he was not actually Spanish, but that he, he was almost certainly French because, uh, some of the big panels that he did behind them, uh, they had newsprint from 19th and early 20th century Paris newspaper. Oh, that's great. And it was definitely one person. It was one, it wasn't. Seems to have been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, seems to have been just one, just one person. And I believe this is the only example of an entire book where he forged mm -hmm. miniatures as opposed to just selling off single, single miniatures or, or pages. The, his work is all over the country. He's, you know, you can find his stuff all over the world now. And, and now there are people marketing forged Spanish forger pieces where they, they claim it's by the Spanish forger, but it's, but it's by somebody else. That's yeah, great. Exactly. It's, it's very people meta. Are, people, are forging, people are forging the forger, forging the forger. 
So that's another great example of these of one of, of these stories, right? So this manuscript starts out life as a totally reasonable, uh, you know, liturgical book with readings, biblical readings throughout the the year, and then the Spanish forger comes along and and has his way with it, and uh, and makes it, it more makes interesting. Way, makes it great for you, and gives it a really interesting backstory. Yeah, really interesting backstory. That that's really neat. So, would it is it fair to say that the Spanish forger's imprint on this manuscript has made it more valuable then in some for sure. senses? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, it's a perfectly nice manuscript, but but it would not be at all as interesting or as um yeah, as worthy of study, mm-hmm. uh, if it were not, in fact, by the Spanish forger. And and I've now gone to Folio 91 Verso, where we find the real calling card of the Spanish forger, which is the um, the low-cut gowns and the, uh, the cleavage. I see the cleavage. <laughs> yes, there is cleavage yes, he was, there. He was obsessed. He was a little <laughs> bit obsessed with large-breasted women, and he, uh, he generally painted them with this very dramatic cleavage. They're all you know, about to pop out of their gowns, uh, which is really not the way that you would that you would depict a woman in a low-cut gown in the 15th or 16th century. You might have a low-cut gown, but you certainly would not depict um, cleavage like that in the same way. So, all right. So that's the Spanish forger. So that's, we've got our, we've seen our fragment. We've seen our forgery. So now we're going to move on to the fiend. I wonder the what it could fiend. be. What could it be? I have no, what I have no idea. Be? I can't even imagine. Let's go over and take a look at Heineke Manuscript 408. Yes. I didn't even mention this in my intro. So people who don't know are going to be like, what is this? What are they going to talk about? Uh, and everyone else is going, I know exactly what's coming up. What could it be? What could it be? Yes, yes, yes. Indeed, our everybody's favorite fiend, Heineke Manuscript 408 also known among friends as the Voynich Manuscript. Yes, indeed. (laughs) The world's most mysterious manuscript, the cipher manuscript, the manuscript that brings out the beast in all of us. Uh, All right, so the Voynich Manuscript, here we go. This manuscript I, I met in 1988 in my Latin paleography class when Bob Babcock, who would later become my boss at the Beinecke, but then was my paleography instructor, brought it out to show us one day. And I was immediately completely became obsessed with it. And because I zoom in, so here we're looking at folio 3R, where we see if we just look first, it looks like a plant, red and green leaves and a stem, kind of a curvy stem and a root system. It looks like a drawing of a plant. It looks like a 15th century herbal is what it looks like. Yes, exactly. And if you zoom in, you will see that it is written using a completely unique series of symbols. Nobody can read it. Nobody. Anyone who tells you they know what it says is lying to you uh, or, or to themselves, more likely. It is never been decoded if it is a code. It has never been decrypted. It has never been made legible in any way. But it has these tantalizing patterns Mm -hmm. that seem like grammatical rules. 
for example, what look like a four and a zero combined, you almost always only find that at the beginning of a word. Mm -hmm. This symbol right here that looks like an M with a little curve at the top is almost always at the end of a word. So the the like in English and in other languages, you you have there are, are spelling rules. There are things that are allowed in Voina cheese, and there are things that aren't. And that's what's really tantalizing about this manuscript is that it feels like it should be readable. Mm -hmm. It should be translatable. It should be decode decryptable. And it just hasn't happened yet. And that doesn't mean it won't ever happen. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't, you know, it, and it's possible that it's just gibberish, that it's nonsense. There, there are people who, who make a very legitimate case for it having been um, reproduced, uh, having been written using uh, uh, different various methods that give you different patterns like this. I've al I also hear people I, I really respect in the linguistics world making the case that it does seem to represent a natural human language we just don't know which language it represents. Mm -hmm. So my own history with the manuscript is, you know, I met it in 1988. I was convinced I was going to be the one to figure out what it was. My brother at the time was getting a PhD in computer science. So I thought, well, gosh, between the two of us, he he's literally a cryptologist. He, he teaches cryptology at the Air Force Academy wow. in Colorado Springs. Like he is like an expert on codes and de decrypting. And I thought between the two of us, surely we we're going to crack this wide open. But of course we didn't. And then when I started working at the Beinecke, the, the thing about being about having the job that Bob Babcock had at the time and that Ray Clemens now has as curator of pre-1600 manuscripts, you get to be the curator at the Beinecke, which is pretty amazing. That the whole collection is just mind blowing and spectacular. But you also have this cross to bear, which is that you are in charge of this fiend, the Voynich manuscript. And it generates more email, more phone calls, more restraining orders uh, than pretty much anything else. Uh, and I'm serious about the restraining orders. There, there are people who are, are not allowed to come within 50 feet of the Beinecke Library because they're you know, conspiracy theorists who think the Beinecke is hiding some secret or that it's aliens or that the Beinecke is hiding the manuscript that the, whatever the thing that people have deluded themselves into believing, people will show up at the library screaming and yelling and making demands and have to be removed by the police and then have restraining orders out. That is, that is truth. So when I got the job as assistant to the curator in the early 90s, Bob had kind of had enough of dealing with the people, the Voynich people. So he put me in charge of Voynich people. And I was in charge of, among <laughs> other, as, while I was cataloging these fragments, I was also responsible for Voynich correspondence. And so we, and this is way before the internet, way before digital images. We had microfilm, we had printout from the microfilm, we had photos. And people would email, or not email, <laughs> see me, this is fine. <laughs> 1988. Who can remember the before times? They wrote letters. Uh, right. They wrote, wrote letters. Wow. And in those letters, they would say, you know, I, I was corresponding with a, a, a prisoner in Colorado at one point who got really interested in the manuscript and various other people from all over the world who would write and say, could you send me a picture? Could you send me this? What do you know about that? 
Uh, and that I found really captivating. So not just the object itself, which is so wild and fascinating, but the people who are interested in it. It, you know, it it attracts because it's so unknown and it it it's got so much variety, it's really easy to see what you want to see in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really grabs people is that they see what they want to see. So if you want it to be aliens, you can convince yourself that it is. You want it to be a modern forgery, which I'm I'm almost 100% sure it is not. You can convince yourself that it is. Whether your argument holds water under scrutiny or is logical is rarely something that that the Voynich enthusiast considers. Mm-hmm. You, it's very easy to, to lose yourself in this mm-hmm. manuscript. It is, it is the rabbit hole to end all rabbit holes. And I will, I will show you a little bit just so you can see what's, you know, if you just Google it, Google with care because you never know what you're going to find. Mm-hmm. At one point there was a, there was a seance a transcription of a seance online where someone was asking um, L. Ron Hubbard in the great beyond about the Voynich manuscript. I mean, you just find amazing stuff. So the first section of the manuscript is this appears to be an herbal, but the plants are really not particularly recognizable. There's been a lot of effort over the years by various Voynichologists, that's a word, who uh, are working very hard on trying to identify these different plants as that you know could be a key to figuring out where the manuscript came from. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk a little about its history uh, in a minute once we get through the sort of the tour. So there's about 50 something leaves of plants. So that's the whole first section of the manuscript is all of this sort of an herbal. Yeah, so the plants, so they don't bear resemblance to any real life plants or any plants in any other herbal. Is that right? Well, that's my own. I, I, I believe that that is the case. Okay. You know, there, there certainly are people who, who try to make a case that this plant represents, you know, this drawing represents that plant. I've, I have yet to be convinced by those identifications. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because the artist was not a great artist, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't know the answer or whether they're really made up plants. <laughs> the expectation, because there's one plant per page, the expectation would be that the text, mm-hmm. if it follows the pattern of a late medieval herbal, would be a description of the leaves, the stem, the flowers, the root, how to care for it, how to harvest it, and what you can do with it, mm-hmm. what its properties are. So that's a, the assumption, but we just don't know because nobody can read the damn thing yet. Yeah. Then after the, the section on the plants, you start to get these pages that fold out, which is also very unusual in a medieval yeah. manuscript that seem to be um, astronomical yeah. in nature. And, you know, the, the, the people who want to talk about aliens get very excited about the star charts uh, that look like they're suns and moons and diagrams of stars. This one seems to have the phases of the moon yeah. uh, going around in this circle with more of this text that is unidentifiable and illegible. Mm-hmm. So here we're looking at a sun with a whole bunch of stars. Are these, is the text, is that the name of the stars? Does it have something to do with the, 
you know, with what's happening with the sun. We just, we just don't know. This one, this is folio 68 recto. There's a little cluster here of seven stars. Is that the Pleiades? Maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So does that mean that the text is somehow a clue? You know, if we could figure out, is that really the Seven Sisters constellation? Well, then maybe this trans this text translates into one of the names mm -hmm. of the Pleiades in another language. So that's another approach besides trying to identify the plants there. You can look at what appear to be labels identifying objects mm -hmm. and um, illustrations. Then we've got, besides some more um, charts and what look like astronomical diagrams, then we get into uh, zodiac mm -hmm. diagrams. So now we've got, we've got plants, we've got astronomy, now we've got astrology. So here's Pisces, quite clearly identified here on folio 70 verso, mm -hmm. with the two, the two fish. A slightly later hand has written the name of the month, here it says M-A-R-C for March wow. in sort of a romance language. It's not entirely clear what, what language these um, month names are meant to represent right. because there's so much variety. And this is where we meet the naked ladies in the baskets mm -hmm. uh, in this section. And this is really a recurring theme, these topless women <laughs> jumping out of baskets. Yeah. What? I don't know. Nobody knows. But here they are, you know, sort of poking out of these sideways tubes or baskets, holding star balloons. What does it mean? I couldn't tell you, but I love them. I think they're all really charming. They're very primitive. This is not an artistically, this is not a high quality manuscript. This is not a, a, a work of art in the way that you might think of a 15th century book of hours no. as a sort of high art. It looks this very much primitive. like other, like a 15th century, you know, as, medical, astrological, astronomical yes. manuscript. Though, yes, like. exactly. That's sort of in the quality, right? Yeah. It, 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 it's not a manuscript made for a rich person. Mm -hmm. It's a manuscript made to be used yeah. and referenced. That's at least what it, what it, what it feels like to me. So in terms of the, in terms of the content and in terms of the, the style. And then once we get past the um, Zodiac, we get to my absolutely favorite part of the manuscript, which is what's called the balneological section. What, what is the word? Balneology, oh. balneology, which means the science of medicinal bathing. Ah. And again, we don't know for sure that that's what this is but it's what it looks like. So it's all of these naked ladies in their baths. Here's one stepping in gingerly over there. We're on folio 75 recto here. So we've got a whole choir of the manuscript devoted to this, you know, very text heavy, but then these depictions of the ladies stepping in or swimming or floating. This one here looks like she's holding maybe a stick to measure the depth of the water. And balneology is something that's that was a very common medical practice. You know, put these herbs in the water. It's hot. The water's or the water's cold or whatever your ailment is, you can soak it away with a you know with a bath bomb. And so this whole section has these wild waterworks 
with tubes and pipes connecting them. This one, this is oh. great. Folio 77 Verso. Right. So what do you think that is, Dot? So the top of the page, we've got sort of tubes connecting and we've got one a sort of thing in the middle with a woman and then it's connected out to tubes on either end. It looks like the female reproductive system is what it looks like. Yes, it does. It looks like the uh, uterus. It looks and like the... uterus and fallopian tubes yep. and some ovaries. That's amazing. That's, that's what it looks like. Is that what it is? I don't know. But further down the page, we have what are these biological diagrams. Right. So this yeah. is, you know, a, a, an intestine and a bladder and what is happening? It, it appears again, it appears we don't know that it <laughs> is, but it appears that this whole section has something to do with health, maybe women's health. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. a, you know, some kind of gynecological treatise uh, about medicinal bathing and gynecology and women's health. We just don't know. We just don't know. But it's absolutely hypnotic as you go through it and try to understand what in the world it is that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. People have very strong feelings about this manuscript, about what they believe it is. But you can see how you can you can map your own vision onto it mm -hmm. really easily. So then once we get through this section, mm -hmm. We come to this crazy mm. pants thing, which is this giant fold out that, uh, you know, it starts like this. It's just a bifolium, but then you open it further and you open it again. And it's this huge diagrammatic fold out in nine circular parts. And when you zoom in, you can see there's real detail. There are these buildings, there's architectural structures, there's text, there's more tubes popping out up here in the upper right corner. There is a building. This is, it looks like a little castle. It does. And in fact, I'm going to rotate it using the viewer. What's really cool about this is not only does it look like a castle, it has a, a very specific kind of crenellation. Let me put it that way. These are called swallowtail merlins. And architecturally, these are localizable. Oh. You find these sort of in Northern Italy and, and up into Eastern Europe in the late Middle Ages. Right. They look like a capital M. Yes. They're kind of like a capital M. Yeah. Right. And if you if you Google Swallowtail Merlins, M-E-R-L-I-N-S, you'll find lots of pictures of them, mostly people doing voynich research. Oh. So that's another clue. Yeah. What does that tell us about the date and place of origin of the manuscript that, that someone has drawn this particular style of building? Mm -hmm. Then we get to uh, a section that, oh, we got to rotate it back. <laughs> there we go. Mm -hmm. That almost looks like a, a recipe, like a blog, where you've got your, here are your ingredients, Here's your vessel in which you put the things. And here's someone saying, so my grandma used to make this and I thought it was really great. And if you want to make it just like my grandma, uh, scroll down 30 inches until you get to the actual recipe and I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. Uh, and so again, we've got what maybe labels. So if we could identify that root, maybe that's its name. Here's another root in a plant and maybe that's its name. So the manuscript is is full of these tantalizing clues that just haven't really gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then the very last section of the manuscript is just text, 
just page after page after page of text uh, in what appear to be paragraphs marked off by a star at the beginning of each uh, of each one. Right. And that's the manuscript. And when you when you put it all together, plants, astronomy, astrology, balneology, recipes, and then whatever this is, it starts to feel like something familiar. Mm -hmm. It feels like a late medieval medical compendium, Mm -hmm. scientific compendium. That's what it feels like. Is that what it is? I don't know. Nobody can't know. All we can do is think about the, the evidence that's in front of us. And when you put all those parts together and think about it in the context of medieval manuscripts, that's where you get. And and the reason that we think of it as an early 15th century object is because of carbon-14 testing that was done on the parchment. Mm -hmm. So the the carbon-14 testing that was done on various pages of, you know, various sheets of parchment uh, selected throughout the manuscript, that was done maybe 15 years ago, I guess, and it concluded with very, very high degree of certainty that the manuscript was written, I think, between 1404 and 1438. But actually, I I said manuscript was written. That's not precise. What the carbon-14 dating tells us was that the animal who was sacrificed to give us the parchment to make the manuscript died between 1404 and 1438. That's literally what that means. So there is always a remote possibility that the parchment sat around for a while before somebody actually wrote on it. Mm -hmm. That's possible. It's remotely possible. Stylistically, the manuscript, that date of early 15th century seems very appropriate given the, the style of the illustrations and the style of the script. It looks like a 15th century humanistic letters. Mm -hmm. If you look at the letters that look really familiar, like this one that looks like an A, this one looks like an O, that one looks like a C, that looks like the number eight. There's one that looks like the number nine. There are all of these characters that that look like letter forms you would find in an early 15th century humanistic manuscript. So that date feels right, not only from the carbon 14 dating, but also from the perspective of stylistically, mm-hmm. from the, the script and the miniatures. The last thing that I wanna say is that the work that I have done on the manuscript myself, I'm very interested in, in the, the people, the Voynich community, and how this manuscript appeals to this incredibly wide and really fascinating group of people, a lot of whom I've, I've come to know as I've become part of the Voynich community. But we all, I've also done my own scholarly work in that a few years ago, I, I was reading, um, you know, sort of doing reading about the, the historical um, work uh, on the manuscript. So I was reading something that was written in the 70s, where somebody said, you know, we think there's more than one scribe, but we really need a we need a medieval paleographer to really dig in and analyze this. And when I read that, I thought, oh my God, I'm a paleographer. <laughs> I can 
do that. This is the, I am a voinichologist and I'm a paleographer. This is the job I was born to exactly. do. And so I spent several years doing a very deep dive into the letter forms and trying to figure out which letter forms were going to be the tell. Mm-hmm. So in for, for Gottschalk, we jump back to Gottschalk for a second. One of the his tells is the way he writes an ampersand mm-hmm. or the way that he does um, R uh, at the end of a word has a little doubled crossbar, a little doubled finial. He does a CT sequence in a very particular distinctive way. So scribes have tells, just like you can distinguish, you know, I know my handwriting. I recognize, I know my mom's handwriting. I know, you know, you learn to recognize handwriting from those tells. So I did a really deep dive into the Voynich manuscript, trying to identify the tells. And the the most important tell is actually uh, at the end of a word. So where you have what looks like an M, there also, it might be more like an N. It's basically a few minims and a curve at the very end. And what scribes do with that curve, that's the tell. Right. And so I can tell you just by looking whether a page has been written by one scribe or another by looking just at that tell. So this one, it looks really different. Oh, it does. Than it's the one more sort of narrow than the other one was. Right. So now we're on folio 28B. This is a different scribe. And so I I broke it down into five different scribes. And I feel pretty confident about that determination. Paleography is not objective. It is a subjective sport. It's based on the human eyeball and connoisseurship. But I feel very confident about these scribal distinctions that I've made. The implication is that there were five people who knew how to write Voynichese. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That is a lot. Right? For me, that tells me it's not a modern forgery. That tells me that it's not one disturbed person randomly writing things down. That tells me it's a collaborative effort mm-hmm. between a group of people who want to record this information. Whether they're trying to hide it could be that they thought it was secret information. They didn't want others to know. So they have written it in uh, a made up language or an encoded language. It could be a phonemic transcription of a language that was spoken and not written Mm -hmm. the way that, um, you know, linguists will record uh, Aboriginal languages that, that don't have a written form, but they will record them using a phonemic transcription. So it could be that. There are lots of things it could be. And until we can read it, we won't know for sure. I'll tell you what I want it to be. I don't have any actual evidence other than what I've laid out already. What I really want it to be is a book by women for women. You know, I want it to have been written by a community of women recording their women's wisdom and women's knowledge for future generations. that's what I want it to be. I, I, I don't know for sure that it is that, but that's what I, what I hope it turns out to be. That would be nice. Yes. Yeah. 
So it's a it's a really fascinating object. You know, I can tell you a little bit about its history if you want to get into that. But it, uh, I'll tell you very quickly, it, it enters the written record through we have circumstantial evidence that it that it appears at the court of Rudolf II in Prague in the late 16th century. We don't know that 100% for sure. It is in Prague until 1665, when it, it's gone through a series of owners. It ends up with a scholar named Marcus Markey, who was a scientist and a, um, an alchemist. And he sends it to Rome to a Jesuit, Athanasius Kircher, who had just written a book on Egyptian hieroglyphs. And wow. so Markey in 1665 sends the manuscript to Kircher and says, if anybody can figure out what this thing is, it's you at my dear Athanasius. And so it ends up in the in the hands of the Jesuits in Rome, and, and it stays there until 1912 when Voynich buys it and brings it to the States. And then he spends literally the rest of his life trying to, trying to sell it. He was a bookseller and he spends his whole life trying to sell the damn thing and, and no one will, no one will buy it. Buy it. And then <laughs> and it, it was eventually given to Yale, right? Yeah. So Voynich, uh, after he died in 1930, it passed to his wife, Ethel. She is a widow for 30 years. She can't sell it to anybody. Everyone wants to see it. Nobody wants to buy it. And then uh, after she dies, it, it passes to her assistant, Ann Mill, who then sells it for $24,000, which is about a quarter of what Voynich wanted for it, to Hans Krauss, the same person who handled the, the fragments oh, yeah. in which the Gottschalk was part. So she sells it to Krauss. Krauss has it for seven years. He can't sell it. No one will buy it. Everyone wants to study it. No one wants to buy it. So in the end, he gives it to Yale. Uh, so that it can be studied, right? And that's and it's been there since 1968, just sitting there in a, in a vault, in a little custom box in the dark, humidity, climate controlled environment, tucked away in a sub basement, while you know this storm surges around it, and it's just in there in the calm eye of the storm, waiting, waiting for someone. There's Voynich fiction, which I'm totally into. I have a whole collection on my shelf back there of Voynich fiction. <laughs> Uh, including my my prized possession. <laughs> oh, that's right. The Black Widow Avengers. Black Widow and the Avengers, where the Avengers are called to New Haven because someone has stolen the Voynich manuscript. Oh, no. And in fact, you there is a depiction here of the Beinecke Library. <laughs> oh, that, in the that looks like it. It's totally cool. And the curator says, please don't harm the manuscript, but we really need it back. And the Avengers go flying around New Haven and they, they find it in a parking garage with a criminal whose name is Diablo, unfortunately. But uh, so Diablo has got the Voynich manuscript and they say, why did you steal the Voynich manuscript? And he goes, well, I needed it for my alchemical research. And then Iron Man says, you didn't have to steal it. It's been digitized. You can see mine. <laughs> Is that amazing? I'm not making That's that hilarious. up. This is canon. This is canon. I love it. Uh, and then, of course, there's Voynich fanfic <laughs> online. Uh, if you go to uh, uh, Archive of Our Own, you will find lots of Voynich fan fiction. Interesting. Uh, a great science fiction story by written written by Harry Turtledove about the manuscript. Fantastic piece of Voynich fiction. I highly recommend it. And then Phil Adamo, who is a medievalist. That's right. He just um, recently has, wrote a book. He just wrote a novel called The Medievalist that, among other things, is the best Voynich fiction I've ever read. The Voynich plays a really important part in this in this book, The Medievalist. I highly recommend it. 
It is a fantastic read. It takes place at Yale. It has to do with, uh, he addresses issues of white supremacy in medieval studies mm -hmm. and the Voynich manuscript comes into it. And it it's just, a, I, I really, really recommend it. It's quite, quite wonderful. He's done his, done his research. His Voynich work is right on, right on target. Yeah. So there they are, the fragment, the fragment, the forgery, and the fiend. I love it. I love it. I don't know. Lindsay, do you have any any questions or thoughts for Lisa? I am on me. Oh, I only have a billion questions. Um, when I was looking at it, mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot of some folk art I've seen, of people who weren't terribly worried about depicting things as they are, but rather as they would like them to be. Yeah. I agree with that. I think it, you know, it's, you hear people try to make the case that it's this super expensive exclusive book and it just isn't, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the materials are not cheap. They're not nothing, but it doesn't have any gold. It has a really limited color palette. It's very sketched. You know, I was going to say sketchy, but that, <laughs> I guess it is sketchy, but also sketched. Mm -hmm. It has a, a very uh, quick mm -hmm. feeling to it. It's definitely not high art. There's a lot of really cool work being done right now by linguists using AI, using really sophisticated computational analytics. I'll put in a plug right now for a conference one month from now yeah. um, being sponsored by the University of Malta, where I will be keynoting. It's going to be, I believe, two days of Voynich papers. Um, everything has been double blind reviewed, and I'll be delivering a keynote at the end of the, of the last day. So I will, I will send you the, um, the URL for that bot and you can, you can I include will, that. I will the post that in the show notes. Yeah. I think the program is going to be posted in the next few days and, and registration is open. So it, I think it's going to be exciting. There hasn't been a real Voynich conference in about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I think it will be really interesting to hear the latest, the latest work. Yeah. And I bet there's a lot that's happened in the past 10 years too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Really interesting stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was great. It's been such a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Lisa. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or a review. We appreciate it. And we'll be back soon with more conversations with people about the manuscripts they love the most. <laughs>